Dr. Elisa Song will return to Australia from the 21st to the 30th of August 2019 for the Bioceutical Seminar Series, Holistic Children's Health. Dr. Song will be sharing her clinical expertise on a range of paediatric health topics, including safe detoxification, autoimmunity, anxiety, autism, gut health, and much, much more. For more information and to purchase your ticket, go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line again today is Dr. Elisa Song, who's a holistic paediatrician, paediatric functional medicine expert, and mama to two crazy fun kids. In her integrative paediatric practice, Whole Family Wellness, she's helped thousands of kids to get to the root causes of their health concerns and help their parents understand how to help their children thrive with their body, mind, and spirit. Dr. Song created Healthy Kids, Happy Kids to share her advice and adventures as a holistic paediatrician and mama. You can follow her blog at Healthy Kids, Happy Kids and get even more tips and inspiration from her on Facebook and Instagram. Warmly, I welcome you back to FX Medicine. Elisa, how are you? I'm great. How are you? So great to have you on the program again. It's been a while. It's been a little while. I think it's been almost a year, right? Yeah, but I'm yeah. excited to be coming back to Australia in the fall. So, well, my fall, your spring. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. Now, you're going to be covering a little something a little bit different this time as well. So, we're going to be talking about teenage health rather than younger children. I guess as a pediatrician, how do you differentiate between children, teenagers, and eventually to segue into where you would pass them off to you know, a, a, another specialist? Well, that's a great question because as I have my kids going off to college, they'll often ask me, how long can I stay for? <laughs> <laughs> and so um, typically, you know, once they're graduating from university and 21 and heading off to be, you know, executives or interns somewhere, I'll, I'll try to pass them off. So I usually tip, uh, see kids until they're about 21. Um, I do have some kids that have chronic conditions mm. that I may see for longer periods. Um, children with pans and pandas, which was the topic of our first podcast last year. Um, many adult psychiatrists, family practice docs, internists, even adult fam uh, functional medicine practitioners are just not that familiar with managing children with sort of pediatric-specific chronic conditions, and even children with autoimmune illnesses that may be a slightly easier transition to an adult functional medicine practitioner. Mm. But, um, but for kids who do have complex chronic conditions, I might see them for longer, but typically at 21, um, I'm, I'm moving them towards transitioning to an adult doc. Yeah, I think that, I mean, even right there is a glaring difference between the U.S. and, the, and Australia in when we consider a child becomes an adult. You know, in, in America, it's depending on the state, it's usually 21, right? I think some states are 18. Mm -hmm. 
Um, uh, yes. I mean, I think that would go mostly, well, every every place the drinking age is now 21, but the driving age varies from maybe 15, 14 to 16. <laughs> right. You know, there's a vast difference in development from even 15 to 21, um, emotional, let alone men- mental or physical. And yet in Australia, the sort of age of 16 is that um, is that age where um, they're able to handle their own affairs. That's that sort of legal age. So I'm wondering whether paediatricians in Australia would hand over their patients to another specialist or general practitioner at a younger age than the US. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Um, that is very interesting because now as I've been doing research for this, uh, the, the, the talk that I'll be giving on teenage anxiety and really looking at adolescent brain development and maturity, it's fascinating. So many parts of our teenagers' brains really don't mature until the late 20s, Yeah, uh, especially, most importantly, that prefrontal cortex that has everything to do with logical and rational decision-making. What's, what's <laughs> so that? It, <laughs> I'm, exactly. I'm, a, I'm a male. I don't have that. <laughs> Well, you know what's what's interesting too. Um, this is not to be sexist at all. This is in the research, but it but research does show when you look at brain scans of adolescent girls and boys, boys do tend to lag at least two years behind oh, yeah. in in you know prefrontal cortex development and and overall you know synaptic pruning. So, um, and so when we think about that, and we think, well, how are schools then, preparing our kids to make those healthy decisions. How are we preparing our kids to make those healthy decisions and and really expecting them to be independent at 16 or 18 or 21 when their brains have not fully matured, when they're really not fully capable of making those rational life decisions that, that they're expected to be making. Yeah, and indeed we'll be discussing some of these issues a little bit later. But but I would imagine, though, that that would present certain issues um, even, in, even within those sort of age groups that we've been discussing, the differences in examination, you know, presentation of various disease, diseases and, and disorders. But I guess especially compared to what most people would see a paediatrician for, and that's their younger children, compared to the teenage years. There must be some real differences in what you see and indeed how you um, examine, not just physically, but also lab assessments. Yes, and you know, the um, there is actually a specialty here in the States. I don't know if this is a specific paediatric specialty in Australia, but we do have a specialty if, uh, in um, adolescent medicine and really? that's its own board certification. So, uh, because we know the teenage brain thinks differently, yes. acts differently, the body acts differently. There's so many different changes and the way we need to approach our teenagers, um, the specific tests and the way we need to really, um, you know, manage their health conditions is very different than mm. what we might do for a toddler or an elementary school age kid. I, I would indeed implore anybody in Australia listening to this, if you have a patient in the teenage years, you want somebody who's not just interested but but um, expert in you know these sort of differences in presentations and requirements and needs. Um, I think that's a real interesting and great idea that the US have have done. I think that's fantastic. 
Yeah. You know, I actually used to think I wanted to be a specialist in adolescent medicine specifically <laughs> um, because they're just, I mean, teenagers are so incredible and they have so much possibility, but then there, are, of course, there's so many frustrations too associated with working with teenagers. But um, if you you really understand what's going on with their brain, it helps us really understand how to talk to teenagers so that we really can make an impactful difference in their lives and help them make those good decisions, even when their brain is not really wired necessary to do that. (laughs) Well, of course, you know, one of the things which creates the way that we think is not just our behaviours and our environment, but indeed our food. So I've got to ask you the question around food sensitivities. Now, you know, we commonly say food allergies. Can we delve a little bit into this? Food allergies, sensitivities, do they present differently in teenagers versus younger children? You know, not necessarily, because we're looking at, in functional medicine, of course, we look at food sensitivities as it relates to leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability, and there are so many extra intestinal manifestations. And, you know, I think the the main difference is that teenagers can now vocalize how they're feeling mm. uh, and may have um, be able to really more clearly state what their physical and emotional symptoms are related to particular foods. And of course, we know that, that kids and teenagers are going to present with mood disorders differently than adults and children may, younger children may manifest depression and anxiety in a different way than teenagers, yeah. but it would still be anxiety or depression or, you know, of course, maybe their eczema or their sleep disturbances or their um, abdominal pain. So it's not necessarily different uh, manifestation. It just may be experienced a little differently, if that makes sense. Yeah. And what about things like, um, not necessarily looking at different presentations, but the uh, prevalence and the types of viral infections in times of, say, hormonal surges. Um, Dr. Mark Donahue and I have been discussing at length, um, you know, Epstein-Barr virus, and it seems mm-hmm. to occur more frequently around that teenage um, years. You know, it was um, whimsically called kissing disease at one stage, you know, and it, it has the, can have devastating effects for certain people. And it seems to be this you know, perfect storm that happens. It's not just the virus, but whatever else is happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I rarely, when I check um, Epstein-Barr titers in young children, do I find them positive. Although some of the children with PANS yeah. uh, and some of the children who are presenting with what really look to be mitochondrial dysfunction will have very elevated Epstein-Barr titers, which I'm always surprised about when I when I have a young child. Uh, but for teenagers, of course, Epstein-Barr is so much more prevalent and common. Uh, and, and in fact, just this this spring, you know, a few months ago, um, it, it seemed that Epstein-Barr was fairly epidemic in the schools here because I was seeing mono, you know, in, yeah. in school after school and, and children presenting with tonsillitis and prolonged fatigue and these flu-like symptoms and sure enough, positive for Epstein-Barr. And in what we worry about, of course, and I, I think that perfect storm is just right because Epstein-Barr we know is mitotoxic and that's what can trigger the chronic fatigue and the chronic pain and the ongoing symptoms. But then, of course, teenagers are, are very often living lives that are mitotoxic without antioxidant-rich diets and too much sugar and not sleeping well and not really protecting their energy reserves. So that is that perfect storm there, I think, for many teenagers. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that, that really interests me. Like, do you, do you think that the perfect storm is something that is required or do you think it's this genetic preponderance for an issue with EBV? 
I'm wondering, you know, like we always like one cause. And that's not going to happen with yep. EBV because you get no, so, you know, the vast majority of <laughs> yeah. us have had EBV and ostensibly haven't necessarily had an issue with it. We just have it within our gene pool now, you know. Um, but for some that's people right. it can be devastating. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's it's both. And and I think it's all, almost always that, that genetic background on top of, you know, your lifestyle that's that's pushing you over the edge. And, yeah. you know, I have some, some kids who are, um, I mean, the picture of health, and they develop chronic fatigue symptoms. Ah. Other kids who seem to sail through. So um, I, I think it is both because um, I, I don't know that I yet have the clinical skills to necessarily predict which teenager in front of me is going to develop problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, you know, to me, it's a big call out, though, that there is a real need for integrative medicine to be aware and alert in these teenage years. Absolutely. You know, I think that for a lot of teenagers, and we were talking offline before about how how I'm more and more seeing children with signs of, well, clinical signs, yes, but laboratory evidence, even without clinical, obvious clinical signs of hypothyroidism, subclinical hypothyroidism, even Hashimoto's thyroid antibodies present. Uh, and also, you know, seeing signs of insulin resistance, even for these teenagers who are athletes and who are thin, and you would never even think that they would have insulin resistance concerns. Mm. But these are concerns I think that we do need to be aware of, especially if a child is presenting with with any sort of a chronic physical or emotional health concern. So I guess, you know, the question there is, which part do you unravel? You know, like, do you look at a stressor creating the insulin resistance because of, say, increased cortisol? Um, do you look at purely the diet as the the, the thing that causes everything? Or do you have to sort of... Um, prioritize which is the most important for each patient and, and weigh each sort of section up, if you like. Yeah, you know, um, when I come to Australia for the seminars, I'm going to be talking a, really a, a lot about strategies and working with your teenage patients because it's not like with a child where you can run any stool or urine test and even, you know, potentially blood testing um, <laughs> that the parents would like yeah. for that child. And for an adult who you'll just go and willingly do any testing that you want to for a teenager, it's really important to prioritize testing. Um, it's really important to prioritize um supplements. And it's really important to prioritize your treatment plan because you may just have one or two opportunities to make an impact on that adolescent's health and well-being before they decide that they're going to keep going with it. So really trying to prioritize, well, where do you think the biggest bang for the buck is going to be? Yeah. You know, where, what is going to make the biggest difference right away so that they start to feel that, hey, maybe this person in front of me, you know, even with their credentials, has something that they can offer me and that I'm actually going to take time to listen to and change my behaviors for. Yes, such an important factor because as <laughs> any parent with teenagers knows, you know, it's hard sometimes to get through to them and you have to prove to them that it's going to make a difference for them. Because, um, yeah. yeah. like, I've got two extremely intelligent young men um, as sons and, boy, during the teenage years, particularly one of them who's mostly like me, um, <laughs> um, talk about refusal, belligerence in the face of even stark evidence that there was an issue. It was amazing. It was really amazing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think teenagers, too, are so... Um, 
so many teenagers are used to being looked at as troublemakers, as irrational, as unable to make good decisions and not trustworthy that, you know, if you have a practitioner telling you all the things you should not be doing and all the things that you're doing wrong, that's immediately going to put up a wall. And I think, you know, part of that, you know, feeling of not being good enough, not being able to do enough and, and really um, and stressing about it is one of the uh, major fuelers for um, the anxiety that we're seeing in our teenagers. I think that, you know, I'm seeing so many kids who just feel like um, there's too many things to stress about. Yeah, for And sure. I feel like my job as, as their practitioner, um, because many of these teens are not going to come willingly, right? They're coming because their parents are making yeah. them come. Yes, yes. <laughs> so if I'm going to connect with them and have them trust me and have them agree to a treatment plan, I have to come at it from the point that I believe that they can actually take their health into their own hands. And I believe that they can make these good decisions for themselves. And I believe that they can actually take a step-by-step forward in the right direction. I want to go back to a thing that you mentioned about diet. You know, teenagers typically have that high-carb diet. They're high energy. They're going through those growth spurts of life. And indeed, we've, we've seen in various papers a change in the microbiota during various phases of life. And indeed, we're talking about food talking to our microbiota. So how important is the microbiota? Not just their gut conditions, which we tend to just compartmentalize these things too, but their mental conditions. Mm. Well, the listeners of the FX Med Australia podcast are intimately aware of the gut brain connection. Yeah. So, sure. um, you know, many of a lot of this is going to be reviewed. But what's fascinating to me is that, you know, it is true that by the time we're about two or three years of age, our gut microbiota is fairly similar to that of an adult. Yeah. But what what I hadn't realized beforehand was that we have these changes, these uh, stages of rapid changes in our gut microbiome during infancy, but also during adolescence and you know during aging, during our you know, our years of senescence, and it's at the, those times that those rapid changes in the gut microbiome actually mirror the synaptic pruning and the changes in our brain development, that kind of neuroplasticity that's occurring in infancy and in adolescence and during senescence. And it's during these times where we can see any disruptions to that gut microbiome can have significant and long-term and even lifelong impacts on neurodevelopment and neuropsychiatric disorders like autism or ADD or schizophrenia or anxiety or you know, Alzheimer's disease. So there's this mirroring there that's really important to know. And so the gut microbiota is not, it's not necessarily even because of, of antibiotics. Now, what is fascinating though for, for um, teenagers, now this was a rat study, but you know, we know rats are very similar to, um, to adults, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and which is why they're used in so many studies. And so um, this was a rat study, but it looked at exposure, a single exposure to LPS, lipopolysaccharide, yeah. during puberty, right? And when when these rats, adolescent rats, were exposed to lipopolysaccharide just once, those rats had enduring and lifelong 
depression in females and anxiety in males. It persisted into adulthood. And so what is lipopolysaccharide? And I've been really interested in LPS and how this affects the gut. But LPS is that um, endotoxin that's derived from gram-negative bacteria in our guts like E. coli or Klebsiella or Citrobacter. And what happens when we have a leaky gut is that LPS can leak into our bloodstream and bind to these LPS um, lipopolysaccharide binding proteins. So you have these LPS-LBP complexes that then will deposit in various places, the brain, the gut, the joints, and cause all sorts of inflammatory trouble. And where they, where they deposit um, can then really manifest as what we're seeing clinically. And so we know that this metabolic endotoxemia has been associated with chronic physical illnesses like you know, autoimmunity, diabetes, um, non-alcoholic fatty disease, liver disease. Also, yeah, the whole gamut. Yep, yep, exactly. But also they found it in anxiety and depression, which is fascinating. Right. And so... Right. And so this is where we're really looking to see how can we make sure that we preserve our teenagers' gut microbiome and gut regulation, because that is going to be one of the keys in preventing that progression into anxiety disorders or major depressive disorders. Um, and, and with these rats, so they also gave these rats probiotics, <laughs> you know, after they were exposed to LPS yeah. and probiotics did actually was able to prevent uh, a lot of the enduring changes, prevent the LPS induced inflammatory changes that then led to anxiety and depression in those adult rats. So we see this evidence and there's a lot of evidence, but this, this to me was profound. And even looking at, you know, antibiotic use, um, in, in adolescence, even just one course of antibiotics in adolescence mm. was linked with a higher risk for depression and anxiety. And so adolescents bring, you know, with them a whole different set of issues because you may have these children, these younger children who were healthy, who parents will say, wow, they were never on antibiotics their whole life great. They never had a strep throat. They didn't have ear infections. They didn't have, um, have sinus infections, but then they're placed on low dose daily antibiotics for their acne. Uh, so what right. is that doing yep. to their gut microbiome? Yeah. Right. And so, uh, you know, we have to think about, you know, really how are we, um, how are we managing not just, um, you know, anxiety and depression, but what are we doing to really prevent that from happening? Because we really are seeing in our teenagers in the U.S. and Australia an epidemic, an increasing epidemic of adolescent anxiety and mood disorders. And what's really disturbing to me is, is the surge in teenage suicide. So, and as we were talking before, I mean, I looked up the, the U.S. numbers and the Australian numbers, and by far, teenage suicide is one of the leading causes. It's actually the second leading cause of death for teenagers in the U.S. Um, homicide is actually the third. Oh, God. Unintentional injury is the first. So it is these um, accidental or intentional um, deaths that are the leading causes of deaths uh, in adolescents by far. You know, when you look at... Um, you know, influenza deaths uh, among teenagers, um, let's see, I'm just looking here at the 2016 data in the United States, influenza and pneumonia were the ninth leading cause. There were a reported 189 deaths due to influenza and pneumonia. Well, you look at suicide, 5,723 deaths Gosh. in that same year. Yeah. So, you know, we need to, we need, this is a public health 
crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And Australia is not far behind. Mm. You know, in Australia, when I looked at Australian numbers, Australia was, let me see, the first cause of death was, I'm going to look here at my, my list here, um, actually, um, intentional self-harm, so suicide was the leading, the leading cause of death. Mm. Um, in Australian youth age 15 to 24 years of age. Wow. The leading cause. The second leading cause was was being a car occupant in um, in a motor vehicle accident. Gotcha. Right. Right. And so, you know, we, and of course, uh, you know, as, as we were talking briefly before, I mean, the suicide rate is twice as high, maybe even higher, for Indigenous Australians of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent. Yeah, I've got to, this really is a public health shame about how we're dealing with Indigenous health, because we're not. We're not asking, we're not consulting, we're dictating to mm-hmm. our First Nations, our First People, who how they should be looking after their health and giving them things which are actually doing the exact opposite. Um, you know, high sugar, high fat foods that that are, you know, the wrong fats and poorly looked after, processed. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that goes for really and any of the underserved populations. They are being neglected worldwide. And so I think, you know, th- there needs to be a wake-up call. If we are going to function as a society and as a community, we really need to understand how to um, help even the uh, the least privileged of our society. I think especially so. Back to our topic, though, from a functional medicine standpoint, what are some of the other factors that might affect mood in teenagers? So in terms of teen-specific issues, especially for teenage girls, one of the things that we need to think about is also hormonal contraception, right, the birth control pill. Because we know that the birth control pill has been associated with dysregulation and disruption to the gut microbiome, but then there was a really disturbing study that came out just in 2017 that found that uh, oral contraceptives were linked with increased risks for suicide uh, by twofold at least, especially for teenagers. So teenagers... mm, between about 15 to 19 years of age had the highest risk of suicide after starting hormonal contraception. Uh, And this was even without a prior history of anxiety or um, mood disorders. So that's one factor. When children, when our teenagers, and I'm seeing a lot of teenagers who want to be on the pill, not because they're having sex, but because they want to manage their acne or because they have really bad cramps or because they're really moody. And so we know, or they have signs of PCOS. There are so many other ways from a functional medicine standpoint that we can address holistically PCOS, yeah. acne, <laughs> you know, um, really, you know, all of those uh, dysmenorrhea that, that, you know, we want to try as much as possible to avoid oral contraceptives simply for that reason. So yeah. that is a teen-specific issue that we need to be aware of and that may be triggering and causing your teenager's anxiety. So if they're on the pill, you want to think, well, could it possibly be related to the pill? Because I've had children, when we're watching really acutely and aware of these risk factors, we can see the changes in their mood after starting the birth control pill. And we know, okay, this is not the right answer for this child. 
And then, you know, specifically for teenagers, of course, you know, teenage years are a time of really reaching out more to their peer network, pulling away from their family and their parents. And so we see with teenagers this massive surge in in screen time use and social media use. And this is where it's been controversial because, you know, so many people want to blame social media for all of our adolescents' ills. (laughs) And, you know, I absolutely believe it's part of it because there's cyberbullying. There's the comparison game. We know that there's been studies looking at Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and um, Snapchat and and these social media platforms, and they've all shown through decreased um, you know happiness ratings after after looking at your feed. But at the same time, social media can play a really positive role in connecting people, teenagers, socially. And so it's really, when I looked at some of these studies, at really how much does screen time and how much does social media really affect our teens, it absolutely can increase teen anxiety and even risk for uh, suicide ideation and even suicidality. But the most protective factor was face-to-face communication. Wow. That in-person interaction. That was the most protective. And the other thing that was protective was exercise, right? And so these Gosh. things that we're really not, we, where we need to focus on, and I would say, you know, with functional medicine, functional medicine practitioners, it, functional medicine and integrative medicine, they are the medicine of the future. We need to change our healthcare system. But at the same time, we need to be careful that functional medicine doesn't just become about testing and about supplements because one of the foundations of functional medicine is lifestyle medicine. And for our teenagers, that is especially important. I'm going to be doing a lot of talking about how we can talk to our teenagers about understanding why it's so important to make these healthy lifestyle decisions and the impact directly to them. Because the more you can educate teenagers, teenagers are smart. They're questioning the world. They're wondering why it relates to them and really what they need to do to be in this world and, and you know, be, be thriving in this world. So if we can educate them about the whys and not just tell them what to do, that will make a difference, maybe less so, and not as much as we'd want to in the short run, but absolutely in the long run. Mm. Um, and of course, we have our new addictions. You know, it's not just video game addiction, but, you know, we have this opioid crisis in the States with teenage addiction. And I don't know how much that is a problem in Australia, but I'm guessing you're not too far behind. Um, and of course, there are these e-cigarettes, these vapes, and these jewels that are rampant. And teenagers don't think that jeweling or vaping is a problem because it's not smoking a cigarette. But we know it's a gateway into nicotine addiction and you know other addictions. And of course, sugar. I mean, sugar is is the most. There is an addiction. You know, <laughs> that yes, sugar is probably is the most dangerous legal drug that our kids can use. <laughs> so we have these addictions that really our teenage brains are so primed for addiction because the way that their amygdala is firing and kind of craving that dopamine and their prefrontal cortex is not yet able to inhibit those impulses. And so those can become a spiral that kids have a really hard time getting out of. And addiction medicine is a completely different 
specialty of medicine that, you know, if your child, if you have a teenager who is addicted, they, they don't just need a functional medicine approach. They really do need that specialized addiction medicine approach. But these are specific issues that we need to think about for teenagers. And as we think about these issues, it can help guide us into thinking about, well, what kind of testing might we run? How can I get my teenager to buy into certain supplements and identify which supplements to target? You know, I, I mentioned before, you know, we talked about sugar and how, how addictive sugar is just as addictive as cocaine or, you know, nicotine or alcohol. But, of course, that sugar addiction in kids and that chronic overconsumption of sugar really sets the stage for insulin resistance, which we know is associated with anxiety. Mm. And then we're also seeing, as I mentioned before, that thyroid function can be really dysfunctional. And unless you're looking for it, you're not going to find subclinical hypothyroidism because that's not a test that's routinely run in teenagers. So there are some tests when a teenager comes in and I have the opportunity to do some blood work that I will run. You spoke earlier about the OCP. They're not necessarily using it for to have sex, but indeed to control their acne. But one of the constituents of there is medroxyprogesterone acne acetate, which can cause insulin resistance. Then you've got issues with thyroid, you've got insulin resistance of then, then you've got a weight problem. Then you've got, you know, possibly polycystic ovarian syndrome in hand with that. Um, And then you've got a body image issue. And then you've got, you know, an issue of social isolation or or a lowered self-esteem. And then it just compounds and compounds. I'm just wondering, like, it, it really is becoming evident how important it is to look at our younger population in an integrative fashion rather, or in a holistic fashion, rather than just there is a disease or disorder and I need to treat that disorder. You need to go right back. Yeah, absolutely. Just amazing. And, and I would say, you know, we really need to start with, with really understanding as parents, even before we become parents, you know, how to set that stage for health, starting from when our children are toddlers. Well, even in utero, because we know preconception, right, there can be a lot of epigenetic programming that occurs for that baby. And so, you know, we need to step back and think, well, where do I start? We need to start from the beginning. And the beginning is even before than we think. <laughs> but for teenagers, and you have a teenager in front of you and, and, you know, we can't roll back the clock, but we can really help them see where the future could be headed, mm. you know, if they're not willing to make that change. One of the biggest ones, of course, is going to be their diet. I mean, I was, I don't know why I'm weird this way. I just always liked things like sauerkraut. Um, and only because, I'll always remember, it, because it was part of a, a Reuben um, sandwich. And yet I just liked that sourness. But I, so many other teenagers don't like these fermented foods. They're into the, as you mentioned, you know, quite high protein, high sugar. How do you gently nudge them towards things like fermented foods? How do you gently nudge them away from increased screen time, for instance, and to get back to a normal sleep pattern when you've got, we know about teenagers being that reverse sleep pattern, you know, they're awake during the night and <laughs> asleep during the day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, with, with even that, I think really getting to know your teenager and, and see which is going to be the easiest thing to change for them. Because if we're asking them to 
get rid of the candy and the soda and, you know, not use your screens at night and, you know, start eating sauerkraut. They'll just walk away saying, well, I'm not going to do any of that. Mm. And so, you know, if you can figure out which, which thing or things are kind of the lowest hanging fruit that are going to really help that child to move uh, forward in the right direction. And for some kids, you know, I mean, this one child who, this one teenager, I just saw the the only thing I said was, you know, for two weeks, <laughs> yeah. right? For two weeks, we're going to get rid of that boba tea. I don't know if you have boba tea, that tapioca tea, <laughs> bubble tea. Do you have that in Australia? It's basically one of those um, sugary tea drinks, right? Right. It's like a it's like a Starbucks frappuccino, um, but but you know it's a, a the fancy new one now. This this bubble tea or boba tea tapioca tea. Gotcha. So this teenager was having maybe three a week. So I said, you know what? Let's just try having water or sparkling water, but a non-sugary drink and get rid of the boba tea. That's it. Just get rid of the boba tea. And then you come back to me in two weeks and tell me how you feel. Right. And, and then we make a little contract saying, you know, anyone can do anything for two weeks. If you just put your mind to it, you have to have a plan. If you're going to go to boba tea with your friends, you have to have a plan of what you're going to drink instead yeah. and, and not just go there and expect that you're going to have the willpower to not do it. Right. And, and that's all we did. For another teenager, the one step we did was we we made a, an arrangement, a deal, that he would keep his cell phone out of his room at bedtime, that it would stay in the living room and charge in the living room, and he wouldn't look at it until the morning because he was getting up to look at it and mm. text. Mm. Right? And so figuring out well, where, where, what's that one thing you could do first? And with your teenagers, you may be meeting with them for shorter time periods, but more frequently to figure out, well, how did that work for you? Let's try this next step. And instead of coming up with a 10-point plan, and I'll see you in two to three months, coming up with a one or a two-point plan, and maybe I'll see you back in two to three weeks. I've got to ask a question about you you as a practitioner now. How do you handle <laughs> a continued frustration with, oh, okay, so you're back again, and you're still looking at your phone at three in the morning, and you know, you're ba- you know, you went back to boba tea or you know, the sort of failures of compliance, if you like, how do you as a practitioner handle them? Do you, do, do you internally just say, I have a white light, it's not affecting me. Okay, let's do this again. <laughs> You're like, how do you protect <laughs> well, you know, yourself? I, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it can be very frustrating. And um, and sometimes what's really frustrating is um, is, is more... Um, I don't want to say undermining because parents really want the best for their kids. But when parents are nagging and saying, why can't you just do this? And, mm. you know, blaming, blaming the teenagers and I can see the teens rolling their eyes, <laughs> you know, um, then that's, that's not very helpful because I mean, if you've ever been told what to do, um, it never goes well, you know, even as an adult. <laughs> and so, um, one of the things that, that I do, and, and I do it gently, but I will call teenagers out on yeah. if they've, you know, made a promise and not, not followed through. Or, um, you know, if I see that I'm talking to them and you can tell that their eyes are glazing over, I'll say, look, I can tell that you're totally disinterested. You're not going to do what I just asked, are you? And then they'll look at me and say, well, I probably won't. Then, then I'll talk to them about, well, what, let's talk about what you are willing to do. Yeah. Right. And if for teenagers who, you know, 
um, you know, consistently aren't making any changes. This one, one teenager, I looked at him because he was in a very different place when he came to me his junior year, failing out of school, um, you know, really from being a, a, a remarkable student in middle school and even freshman year doing really well, wanting to go to college, you know, having a career path, wanting to be an architect, to failing out and, and you know, really being at risk for not graduating from high school. Mm. And after I don't know which visit, maybe it was the third visit, I just I looked at him and I said, Hey, are you really interested in getting better? Yeah. Do you really want to go to college? And I, I, I asked him to think about when you were that, you know, thirteen year old eighth grade kid looking ahead towards high school and college, if you saw who you are today, would you have wanted to become this teenager? Ooh. Right. And, yeah. and of course, he said, absolutely no. <laughs> right. Because that wasn't his goal. That wasn't his dream teenager to be. And, and I knew that. And so and I've no, I had a good relationship with him and his family. So I could I could call him out on it. And I mm. could say, look, you and I know this is not the kid you want to be. It's just that you're stuck now and figuring out how to move beyond that. So, you know, you have to trust me that this is this one step you need to take now and then we'll figure out the next steps. That's such powerful words, Elisa. You need to take this step now. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we have to be a little directive in a loving way. <laughs> but, you know, with teenagers, you know, a little wiggle room and, and you know, the, their brains will interpret it as, oh, it's not necessary. Yeah. Elisa, you mentioned something a while back there, and that was regarding the use of antibiotics for acne, you know, the low-dose doxycycline, for instance, at uh, 100 milligrams. So that's below what's, what's termed as the minimal inhibitory concentration, the MIC. And I, I just remembered something that uh, it was a conversation that I had with a dermatologist. So they were telling me about um, a patient who was on long-term doxycycline. And I was saying, well, but isn't that a non-issue because it's low-dose doxy, it's only 100 milligrams, so it's below the MIC. And they said, well, it's below the MIC for an infection, but it's not necessarily below the MIC for your commensal bacteria, which was a huge light bulb moment for me. Um, massive issues here. It's another call out to really look earlier about interceding in an integrative, holistic fashion rather than just going down the very simple, attractive drug route to a short-term fix. That, that's absolutely true. Now, um, you know, we can sit here as adults who've kind of moved beyond our acne days <laughs> and say, well, let's try diet and let's, you know, do make sure that we understand how to take care of our skin and, you know, which, which topicals to apply. Um, but as a teenager and seeing a lot of teens in my practice who do have really, really terrible cases of acne and you tell them, look, the two foods that are going to be the most significantly correlated with your acne are going to be dairy and sugar. So let's try cutting it out. And they're looking at you thinking, well, I'm not giving up my pizza and I'm not giving up, you know, my Gatorade. Um, even for their skin, although some surprisingly will, right? But but that acne, especially if it's cystic and you know all over their face and their chest and their back, and it's prom and they they need to be in a strapless dress. I mean, it can be really um, 
not just physically scarring, but emotionally mm, mm. scarring and, and socially devastating. And so I have had kids, after we've had this discussion, um, decide to um, that they do want to do the low-dose antibiotics or that they do want to be on the Accutane temporarily. And so then we just have a conversation about, well, what does this mean? Let's understand whatever medicine or supplement we take, we always want to question, well, what are the what are the side effects and what are the potential, you know, adverse consequences? And how can we mitigate those? How do I, knowing that antibiotics are going to disrupt my gut microbiome and increase my risk for later, you know, autoimmunity or mood disorders or whatever yeah. have you, mm. um, how do I preserve my and protect my gut microbiome? And that means, okay, let's have a conversation about what kind of foods we can do that will help protect your gut microbiome if you're choosing to be on these antibiotics for long term or taking probiotics and eating fermented foods and trying fermented foods if you haven't already had them as part of your diet and taking a little extra glutamine. You know, just some of the things that they need to be aware of so that they're making a fully informed consent. Yeah. Because unfortunately in the conventional world and not knowing, you know, many of these well-intentioned conventional doctors, they don't really know the full story of what these adverse consequences are. So if we can inform our teenagers and help them understand really how to make those good decisions, not just around their acne medicine, but even later on, you know, around their cholesterol medicine, you know, when they're yeah. adults, um, you know, they're, they're going to have those, those skills to really be good healthcare advocates for themselves for the rest of their lives. Now, you're coming out to Australia, as we said earlier, in August 2019. What can prackies expect apart from just what we've spoken about in the seminar series? So during the seminar series, and I'm really excited because um, I'll actually be in five different cities over a 10-day period, giving two seminars. The first is going to be on you know what we need to know from a functional and integrative um, perspective on teenage anxiety. Um, you know, many much of what we've spoken about today, but going a little deeper into some of the potential triggers that we need to understand and. Um, possible treatments, uh, possible uh, testing options, and uh, treatment options for our kids with teenage anxiety, whether or not there are medications, because we know that um, only about 20% of kids will actually find long-term relief on antidepressant medications. Uh, And then the second, I'm really excited about, the second talk will be on clinical clues in pediatric functional medicine because there's such a paucity of functional medicine practitioners who are really comfortable in seeing and treating children, but there's such a need, um, especially with this this surge of childhood chronic disease. And so during this seminar, we're just going to be really taking a deep dive into how could we, even if our testing capabilities are limited, what are the signs, clinical signs and clues that we might see in a child for the most common core biochemical imbalances, mitochondrial dysfunction, um, mast cell uh, um, uh, reactions, um, you know, other signs of chronic immune dysfunction. And how do we know then if we cannot test what tests we might run, what supplements, diet and lifestyle um, factors might we consider in their treatment plan. So really some of the pearls that I've learned over my past, you know, 15 years as a pediatric functional medicine doctor. I can't wait to see you again. 
to hear the lesson that you that you teach because I always learn from every single thing that you say, Dr. Elisa Song. Thank you so much for taking us through just the very tip of the iceberg which, with Teenage Help, but some really salient lessons that we need to watch out for and be aware of how I guess we're placed with uh, you know talking with our our teenage patients. Thank you so much for taking us through these issues today. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me again on the podcast for the third time, and I'm so excited to come to Australia and see everyone. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. FX Medicine proudly supports the Holistic Children's Health Seminar Series with Dr. Elisa Song. For more information and to book your ticket, go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab.